I want to welcome everyone here to our talk tonight to the space that we'll hopefully hold together. Um, I have headphones on, so please let me know if you aren't able to hear me first. Um, and I want to invite you all to leave your cameras off or turn them on as you feel comfortable doing so, whatever is most uh, comfortable for you. Please feel free to do that. And I want to introduce myself. My name is Sagan Johnson. I'm currently a graduate student and a master's in divinity program at the School of Theology at Boston University. So I'm in Boston right now, sending you greetings from a wintry into spring day here, um, night here. And I lived in residence at San Francisco Zen Center for six and a half years. I've lived at all of the temples. So I'm familiar with uh, Yez and the, the wonderful, wonderful opportunities that you all have to sort of sit together and create community. And I wanna say thank you to May and Kodo and all the folks at Zen Center who invited me to be here with you tonight. So. Uh, deep bows of gratitude. Thank you so much. In welcoming everyone here, I want to first say that I hope that this is a nourishing space for each of you. And I'm holding that intention that we just support each other in our practice throughout this time. And I want to take a minute to offer the meta of our sitting practice tonight to all of those affected by the suffering in Ukraine and Russia right now, and those who are experiencing violence or unrest of any kind. I titled this talk, Wildest Dreams, Walking the Bodhisattva Path, Yasodhara, Harriet Tubman, and you, uh, because I wanted to explore some of the ways that we find ourselves relating to being a bodhisattva. Typically, I think we think of the bodhisattva path as the steps or the elements of the Eightfold Path, which are right view, right thinking, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right diligence, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And I think that while those steps and elements are helpful for us in our sort of everyday lives as we move about in the world, for our purposes tonight, I'm really interested in thinking about how we as individuals relate to the path. How do we come to find ourselves comfortable with this experience of an expectation, so to say, of delaying our own enlightenment for the benefit of others. We come to walk this path, most of us, because we take seriously the Bodhisattva vow. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. I spent a lot of time considering the awesomeness of this vow that I commit myself over and over again 
to doing something which is essentially impossible. And quite frankly, the saving, the ending, and the entering sometimes seems daunting and exhausting. And yet it still calls to me. And responding to that call takes more than just following a set of steps and ordering our lives in particular ways. I think that living vow means we get intimate with ourselves and the world. So in thinking about that, I think the vow comes to us from the Buddha's life. This man who left a life of privilege and the comforts of his home, left his family to go see what he could see out in the world. We're told he saw old age, sickness and death through a series of trials and tribulations. Uh, some of them included harm to his body as he explored asceticism, psychological episodes where he may have seen visions. Ultimately though, he came to some understanding about the world and then he vowed to share that understanding with others. It was that important to him that he needed to delay his own enlightenment for the sake of other people. And in the Soto Zen tradition, we emphasize the Buddha's sitting. Dogen gave us Shikantaza. And as much as I value this practice, I wonder where else in the Buddha's story can we learn to relate to our vow and walking the Bodhisattva path? And I think about this because I'm a theologian and I'm interested in the ways in which we speak about the divine in our lives and what it calls us to do. There's a womanist theologian, her name is Dolores Williams, and she's famous among other things for challenging the Christian community to think differently about their relationship to Jesus. She argued that there's no salvation on the cross, especially for black women. She says that the image of Christ on the cross is more representative of the triumph of evil doings, the actions of people who put him there, and instead, Williams suggests that we should look to Christ's life and resurrection as central points because they demonstrate ministerial vision. And that this is important for Black women living in a world in which they are often demeaned and devalued. More importantly for me, Williams suggests that theologians and practitioners have a responsibility to think about our own faith journeys with respect to the textual foundations of whatever our faith practice is, because doing so will help us understand where we identify, with what we identify, and with whom we identify in our faith practice. And tonight, I wanna think about how do we begin to approach centering our own faith journey so that we find meaningful support in our practice, rather than just taking the elements of that practice and applying it to our lives. How do we really think through coming to a spiritual practice with all of our stuff and not simply taking from that practice and overlaying it onto our stuff? So getting in touch with our faith journey is important also because we don't do this work alone. One of the things we take refuge in is Sangha and taking refuge in Sangha means 
taking refuge in the fact that other people are sincerely practicing finding their own authentic selves. And that also means making room for somebody else's faith journey. And the more we understand our own journey, the more we understand the work it takes to be on that path, and the more we're able to relate to others. And I think the process is different for all of us, but tonight I wanna to suggest that there are some things that we can do to support us in this endeavor. And sort of like five things. Consider where you came from as useful information. Look at the whole story of the Buddha's life and think about who or what is missing. Be willing to take a fearless look around you and take in everything that you see. Be willing to be changed and actively think about others and offer what you have to offer with a spirit of sincerity and generosity. How I relate to this is that in my own faith journey, it includes a commitment to social action. And because this is important to me, I wanna find in my faith practice, something that speaks to that importance. And so considering where you came from, what you need and being curious, the Buddha left the walls of his sort of relatively comfortable life. And yet when he went out and saw old age sickness and death, I think it's important to know that the juxtaposition of old age sickness and death is just very different from where he came from. So one of the things that we can do is really think about where we came from and how that impacts what we're going to do when we're out in the world and where we find meaning in our activity. Recently, I came across, I was uh, walking down the streets of Boston and I came across a couple of things. I came across a Black Lives Matter sign. It was a mural that was outside of Fenway Park, which is where the Red Sox play. A sign with a June Jordan quote that said, we are the ones we've been waiting for. I saw a t-shirt in a storefront that read, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. And then when I got home, I realized that a friend sent me an email that included a photo of some, uh, I think, first or second year medical students, Black medical students from Tulane University, which is in New Orleans and Louisiana. And they were standing in front of an old house on the Whitney Plantation where enslaved people were held in bondage. And the photo was captioned, we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And I couldn't find the origin of this phrase anywhere. I'm not sure exactly where being our ancestors' wildest dreams really started, but it's become a bit of a rallying cry for many of us in the Black community. And I think it has its roots in Maya Angelou's poem, Still I Rise. And in part of that poem, she says, leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. 
I think this phrase resonates and is so important for many of us in the Black community because it expresses several things at once. It expresses humility and gratitude for living in a time where we have significantly greater opportunity to live lives with a great deal more freedom than our ancestors. The phrase is also a reminder that these opportunities were paid for in blood and erasure. People's names were lost, their families were torn apart, their lives were discarded. And also in this phrase, there's deep appreciation for the many gifts that we inherited from our ancestors. Art, music, crafts, laughter, food, and the ingenuity, care, and patience that made these gifts possible. And lastly, this phrase expresses an acknowledgement of the responsibility to carry forward that which we have been given. So my faith journey includes this connection to a historical past, a legacy of pain and suffering, but also a legacy of survival, love, and compassion. And in the story of the Buddha's life, I see myself, I see Harriet Tubman, I see a woman who found her way out of bondage, found her way to freedom, looked around, saw a world that she really wanted to change. And then she went back for others to bring them to where she needed to be. This is Bodhisattva activity. This is important to me and a way that I wanna recognize it in my faith journey is being able to see in the Buddha a way that he walked out into the world and left behind certain things that were uncomfortable uh, and also was willing to go on a journey, right? He needed to go on this journey, it was calling to him. Secondly, thinking about the whole story. Um, one of the ways that I think we can find ourselves in the life of the Buddha is considering the people that aren't in the story that we normally hear, the people who are left out, the people who were potentially hurt by his actions. There's more to the story than just the linear trajectory of he left, he saw, he found a path and then he delayed enlightenment and he sat, right? There's more to it than that. There's the story of the people he left behind. Yasudhara and the children are mostly left out of the normative narrative of the Buddha's life. But I think that finding ourselves in our faith practice means taking a look at this aspect of his life, being willing to see more to his story than just what's been privileged before. And in doing so, we realize there's actually an entire folk tradition that is uh, dedicated to Yasodhara herself. And while I'm not necessarily going to spend too much time talking about her specific story, the, the fact that her story has become so important to the narrative of Buddhist practice means that 
there's something there that has value for people. People needed to see themselves in her. They needed to see their story in more than just the Buddha having left, right? So I think if we can relate to our practice in a way that also asks us to think about who's not there, we also ask us, it asks us to think about the ways in which the story of the Buddha can limit access for other people, the way that it's traditionally been told. So I think that one of the ways that the Buddha's story is told is that we sort of privilege this home leaving, this idea that we need to separate ourselves from our families and kind of go off and find a life where we pay attention to our attachments and we let these things go. For some folks, that's not necessarily the most helpful um, of frameworks. There are a number of people in the world for whom separation from their family is actually quite tragic. Separation from their family is something that contributes to a great deal of suffering. And particularly here in the United States, we often tend to think that it's the, the people we don't tend to think, we tend to treat the people who left their homes as sort of less than, right? We think of refugees, we think of people of color who are coming to this country. The assumption is they've left something behind that isn't important to them. And I think that if we privilege the narrative of the, the Buddha in terms of him leaving his family, then we also privilege the idea that it's a positive thing only that we need to do. And we miss an opportunity to examine the lives of the people that he left behind. In particular, Yasodhara, her life, she became an arhat, she had visions and mystical powers. And there's a way in which people finding meaning in her story, oftentimes it's told in terms of grief, the people find meaning in her story because they need to reframe it and find themselves in the practice itself. And thirdly, taking a fearless look around you. The Buddha walked out of his gates. He saw old age, sickness, and death. And this is important to the narrative of how we practice. But I wonder if we can think of that as also taking a fearless look at what's around us. He didn't necessarily just see old age, sickness and death. What if he saw poverty? What if he saw classism? What if he saw misogyny, ableism, racism, environmental devastation? Our faith journeys include more than just needing to understand our relationship to craving and dying. Our relationship to death is important, but that's not it, right? There's more to our lives of being bodhisattvas. There's more to the calling of having a life that is dedicated and predicated upon relieving the suffering of others that calls us to be willing and able to see the suffering in, that is around us. 
And that also means being willing to be uncomfortable in the way that the Buddha was. Being willing, if, if we can, to find a connection to that which says we can look at the world and we don't necessarily have to just sit with it. Once we sit with it and we get intimate with it, we can find a way to participate, right? And each of us in the way that we find ourselves there, I think is just an important practice to think about how we find ourselves there. So for me, again, going back to this story of Harriet Tubman, I can see a bodhisattva. I can see myself in this life of someone who is going out and looking at the world around me, not just some specific things, only look at old age, sickness, and death. I can look at what's happening in my community. I can look at gentrification and I can look at housing issues and I can look at violence in the community and I can say, what is my path in this way? And once we start to think about those things, this journey asks us to be willing to be changed. The life of the Buddha beyond just his sitting tells us that he didn't stay Siddhartha. He left his environment and there's a change that took place. And I would suggest that we don't have to only see the change of the person who sat down. I think we can also see that he was profoundly impacted by what he saw in such a way that it moved him to change his entire life. It moved him to sacrifice his life for other people. I don't know that we have to think about sacrifice in the sense that we give up and lose things, lose our entire sense of self for other people. But I think we know that the journey will be hard. And I think we know that we can be changed in the process. And that changing gives us a certain kind of strength. It gives us a certain kind of capacity to be the people we need to be in order to respond to the suffering in the world. And there's an implied kind of importance and urgency to doing bodhisattva work. Right? He kept going because there was something driving him to relate to what he saw. He needed to relate and understand this old age, sickness, and death. For, for some of us, we're needing and struggling to relate to something different. But I think it's the fact that he was willing to be fearless and look out and curious and see what was out there that he was able to find his own genuine calling. One of the stories about Harriet Tubman that I find uh, particularly meaningful is that when she crossed the imaginary line into freedom, 
she looked at her hands and she wanted to see if they had changed. She wanted to, to have a sense that the person she was before she crossed that line was different than the person she now was. And after some time, she realized she was the same person. And at the same time, something magical did happen. Something changed to the extent that she realized in this moment, what I have, I want other people to have. And I'm willing to spend my days and my nights making sure that other people have access to this. This is one of the ways that I find myself in the theology, in the practice, beyond just sitting practice. This is one of the ways that I can find myself reflected in the life of the Buddha. And then finally, actively thinking about others. The Buddha delayed his own enlightenment he founded a community and he's sort of, you know, shared the word. He went out and didn't force it on anybody, but he wanted to make sure that there was access to a message that he had. And again, when we're thinking about our own faith journeys, the reason I think this is important is because we have to find what it is in ourselves that we want to share. I don't know that we have to share exactly the same things that the Buddha shared, but I think that once we look out into the world, we see what's there, and then we find in ourselves that which calls us to respond. Uh, Dining Katagiri says in a book he wrote called You Have to Say Something, that by doing nothing, by sitting, you discover what there is that really needs to be done. By saying nothing, you discover what it is that really needs to be said. And I think that this is reflected in the sitting that we get from the Buddha, but it's also reflected in the way that he sort of genuinely was willing to live in to the spirit of being helpful and of being service to others. Tonight, I wanna to suggest that this way of looking at our practice is as important as thinking about what we get from our practice. What does it give us? I think finding a way to examine the ways that our practice is helpful to give us the, the courage, the compassion, to go out and share with others something that is gonna ease their suffering. This is an incredible gift and in order to do that, I don't think we can be separate from the stories that we tell ourselves about our practice in general. 
I think that these stories really matter. And just as much as it is important for us to think about how we sit in meditation, how we employ the paramitas, how we think about the immeasurables, the ways in which these teachings can support us are important, but it's just as important to think about what it is that calls us to practice to begin with, what it is that we think is going to be nourishing for us. And if we can't find it, then there's gonna be a disconnect somewhere. And I think that there are ways that we can find ourselves in the life of the Buddha. And we can find ourselves in these cultural touchstones, in these spiritual touchstones, in these communal touchstones that have value for us, that are reinforced by this practice. And with that, I want to play a recording of the poem, Maya Angelou's poem, Still I Rise. Recording linked in podcast description. Thanks so much for listening. I hope that that gives you a sense of what I mean when I talk about finding ourselves in our theology, finding ourselves in our practice. It's really important to be able to bring in these moments that personally resonate with us and see it reflected in the stories that we find so spiritually nourishing and meaningful.